everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. I'm Brittany Simon, and today I have the immense pleasure of joining Dr. Myra Estrada to talk about non-traditional patient management. And before you, A, tune out because you've heard this before, one, I promise you that you haven't, and B, you want to give Dr. Estrada a little introduction here and let her um, add anything that I missed. Um, Dr. Estrada was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, and she received her Bachelor's of Science from Florida State University and her Doctorate in Dental Medicine from Temple University in Philadelphia, PA. During her time spent in PA, she also co-founded Temple University's first ever Peru mission where her team provided free dental care and oral health education to more than 800 infants and children of La Sagrada Familia Orphanage, please, if I said that wrong. Um, she also is a general dentist who does everything from crown and bridge work to complex full mouth restorative and rehabilitation cases. And because we get to work alongside each other every day um, at Spodak Dental Group, I have the privilege also of seeing her patients from start to finish the transformation that she helps them to achieve. So is there anything that I miss? I know what an amazing person you are, but do you want to um, add anything? Oh, you know, it's funny because when I'm with patients, I have to be the star because the patients are so much focused on me. But in general, real life, I hate to be the center of attention. Oh, um, no, yeah. I think that's great. Perfect. You're an introvert, right? On your culture index? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Do you talk worry. about culture index? Have you ever talked about that? Yeah, uh, Dr. Pakora and I just did an episode on that. Actually, I'll send it to you after this. <laughs> So that being said, our topic today is patient management. You guys might be thinking to yourself like, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. I got that part down pat, or maybe you're kind of newer to the game and I've now piqued your interest, but either way, I promise that today I'll be talking about some common challenges we face that are just very seldom addressed when we talk about patient management in these specific areas. So the one that's commonly addressed, of course, is the fearful patient. But in addition to that today, we're going to be talking about how to manage our gregarious and talkative patients, the overstepping or inquiring patient, the avoiding payment patient and the chronic fail, the insurance-driven patient, the friendly patient, and finally, we'll wrap up with our favorite patients, which are our favorite patients. So first, let's, let's start with the most obvious and most commonly addressed, which is the fearful patient. So as we know, fear can trigger seemingly the worst in our patients. And oftentimes when patients are fearful, they're experiencing a triggering event, and many of us have experienced this, whether it's in a dental office or somewhere else. Um, It may begin as soon as they call to make their dental appointment, or when they first walk through the door, enter our operatory. And although we can't control all the components of whatever helped this person to develop a dental phobia, we can absolutely control how we respond and treat our fearful patients, right? So it's important to note that a patient's dental phobia is not a reflection of our expertise, um, our clinical abilities, or us as humans. I think that's me filter, Sharice, and I talk about all the time is looking at 
what's happening to us or how people are treating us as though it's it's something wrong with us, you know? So so getting out of our own heads and out of our own way in that way, especially when we're dealing with fearful patients is extremely important. So as- It's F- so ironic actually that you say that, that we're, that when they react that way towards us, that we feel like it's something wrong with us because probably what they're thinking is that they have probably built up so much fear about coming to the appointment and they probably have some shame associated with it. And so they probably feel like there's something wrong with them and their way of reacting is by deflecting and trying to make you feel like there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like a lot of times they come in and they already feel like they've already predicted everything that's going to happen in the appointment and they already know the worst is going to happen. And then they're surprised when we actually sit down and listen to them. And it's nothing like what they were imagining in yeah. the first place. Yeah, for sure. I love what you just said about like the projection thing, because I think we all do a little bit of that, like the spot it, got it thing when something and someone else really bothers you. It's like probably something you're dealing with or something that you about yourself. I think it happens like in the opposite too, like you just said. Um, But in just a minute here, I'm going to get to the part where you and I go into the consult room and kind of do that face-to-face patient introduction before we even bring them into the clinical area when they're a new patient. So I definitely want you to elaborate and kind of share what your success has been in that scenario, because that's something that really alleviates a lot of what you just explained. It's also important for us to remember that each person is responsible for his or her own feelings, right? That we don't have to carry them. So remembering this can help to alleviate our own stress and pressure while dealing with anxious and fearful patients or those with mental or behavioral issues and disabilities even. So some signs of fear that we're all familiar with can be, you know, increased heart rate, faster breathing or shortness of breath, butterflies or digestive changes, sweating and chills trembling muscles. And as we know, communicatively, what this can look like um, and sound like can be aggressiveness, defensiveness. Um, If someone is talking quickly, kind of like that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, um, or saying and doing nothing in response to what we are saying. Like if we are educating the patient and they're just like absolutely not responding, they may be in that frozen kind of fear response. So the catatonic state. <laughs> yeah, catatonic state, exactly. Um, they may be gripping the chair, they may have rigid posture, there may be crying or mood swings or unpredictability in their mood. So, in my experience, alleviating fear in patients really boils down to giving them autonomy, information, and a sense of control. So, what do I mean by this? And Dr. Estrada, this is really where I want you to chime in if you don't mind, because I want to talk about what you have done to really alleviate fears in your patients. Because I have seen like even your full mouth restorative cases, patients who come in with major dental anxiety and major fear and how you've kind of like deprogram a bomb kind of like you kind of diffuse it. Yeah. You diffuse it. Exactly. Could you explain kind of what that looks like from your perspective in a new patient appointment, like when they are entering the office to meet you for the first time and how you help to alleviate that on the front end? So it's funny because with every person, there's always an individual way you can kind of feel people out and sense how they feel. So when you can sense that they have a fear just because they're either right off the bat before you give them a reason to, they already, you can feel that they've already decided that they don't want to be there or they just are, sometimes they're trembling or they're sweating or, you know, sometimes you have people that just cry before you even start anything at all. And you're just in the room. So one of the things I always say to them in the beginning is once I can sense that they have a fear, I'll say to them, do you, you know, have you ever had a bad experience before? And it's all, whenever somebody has a fear, it's usually a result of having had a bad experience. And anytime someone says yes to that question, 
then the verbiage I usually use is first, I commend them for coming in and I'll say, you know, well, you know, did you sleep last night? Maybe they didn't sleep the night before. And if they didn't sleep, then I say something like, well, you know, I, I know that you do have a lot of fear built up or, you know, this must have been hard for you to come today. So I really commend you for coming in today. And, you know, starting from today, we're at least going to be on a road in the right direction. It doesn't have to go too fast or too slow, but it just at least is moving forward in a direction that is, you know, best for you. That's one thing. I always try to make them feel good about themselves for coming in because usually it takes a lot for them to even show up. Sometimes you have patients that just walk in the front door and even when they're like filling out their paperwork, their hands are shaking or you you can just sense it. As soon as they walk in, you just feel it that they have a fear. And once you talk to them and you can get a little bit of comfort in them just by commending them for coming in right off the bat, then that's something that can disarm them in the beginning. And that's really all it is, is you're just kind of disarming them because they've come in with a wall of defense and you just have to disarm them. Yeah. And it sounds like when you congratulate them, you take them from a place of probably like that internal shame dialogue to like a place of like celebrating. And it's kind of like how you can't be really having um, a bad day or be in a bad state when you're expressing gratitude. I think it might do the same thing like mentally for the patient. Like you just, you, you kind of like influence a mental switch for them when you do that. Mm -hmm. For me, I think what has worked best, like, especially in the new patient appointment is while reviewing the med history, like in a private space with you or whoever the doctor is, I, I like to ask, and it's a part of our medical history as well. Um, but I like to ask about their prior adverse dental experiences and provide some time and space specifically for them to share these um, and elaborate on one. I want to know what went wrong, you know, what caused physical pain or discomfort and what should have been communicated beforehand in that experience. Like what do they wish the outcome had been instead of what they experienced? And then I like to let them know that I'm hearing what they're saying. I'm empathizing with their pain and their bad experience. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not gaslighting them. I'm assuring them that it won't happen in my chair. And I'm taking responsibility for making sure it doesn't happen in my chair. Um, I like to make specific how I can solve their problem. So I, I explain how their past dental problems can be solved in my chair. And then I even give them power to request what they need. So ask if they've had nitrous in the past, um, if not explain the purpose and function, tell them they have the option of requesting desensitizers, local anesthetic, tell them about our massage chairs, um, noise canceling headphones, that they can have bathroom breaks or breaks at their discretion if they need that. And then I, I also give them some power by letting them know that if I'm doing something that's making them uncomfortable, they can just raise their hand and I can stop whatever we're doing immediately so that we can discuss what's happening for them and then kind of adjust or pivot accordingly. And so this does a couple of things and it's kind of like what you and I talked about in regards to um, clinical case closure and enrollment. Like there's a certain, there's a certain um, way and order that, that this communication should be ideally to like relay certain information and to kind of like psychologically alleviate some things for the patient. So on the front end, what we've done in the questions that I just asked in the conversation that we just had is we've addressed what went wrong before, what did in order to be okay in that scenario. And then I've alleviated their fear that it might happen again. And then I've given them the power to own their own comfort, right? So that, that is the solution. I've given them a voice and we have like a small amount of rapport and trust at this point. And that's before we've even entered the clinical 
the clinical area. And I think this, this conversation ideally should happen before we enter the clinical area, because I think once a patient who is already dental phobic gets there, they, they're, they're almost like in a triggered state, sometimes beyond like that, that reasoning mental state, you know, like when someone's really anxious, they're like more in an emotive kind of like basic instinct state. Like they just want to survive. You'll get the most mindful people, people Mm -hmm. who generally live a life of mindfulness, but when they get to the dentist, all of that goes out the window. It's like the stress, they just become swamped in the stress of their anxiety and then they lose themselves and they forget everything of who they are and they just start snowballing this like this scenario that they've played out in their mind about what could possibly go wrong and the shame that they feel about not having come to the dentist for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add about how to calm and alleviate fears for our anxious patients. I have, I have a little like seven tips from dentalassociates.com that I thought was helpful for kind of advising your patient how to manage their own fear prior to coming to the appointment. But is there anything else that you think you would do or has worked for you clinically regarding managing the fearful patient? Once they're in the chair, I do the same thing like you were saying before, where before I start working, first, I make sure that they are, for me, it's a little bit and maybe it's not so different, but first I make sure that they're actually numb. So I always make sure that they're actually numb because I think the biggest, um, one of the main ways that patients get traumatized is that they're too polite to communicate that they're not numb. And so instead of telling you that they're not numb, they'll just kind of be tough and tough it out. So mm-hmm. one of the first things I always do is I make sure that they have you know profound numbing. And after that, um, then when I start working, I'll say to them, you know, you should be completely comfortable the entire time. You don't need to be tough. If you feel anything sensitive at all, raise your left hand and we will stop. Um, But as long as I communicate that to them, because a lot of times they just try to be tough or they're just too polite. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that leads to their trauma is that they're too polite. So Mm -hmm. I try to be, we just have to be extra mindful of them when they're in this state. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I love that all this happens on the front end, not like after an event has taken place, like, Oh, well, you should have told me like that you weren't numb. Like you put the power in their hands before any, before an event can happen. So that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a huge in regards to preventing more traumatic experiences from happening. Cause I think sometimes patients don't realize their own part in what contributed to their past bad experience. Like maybe it was a situation where they weren't profoundly numb and they just speak up. Right. And then they're like recreating that scenario by not speaking up, but maybe they're just not aware of that. So you're bringing that awareness to them. Um, I liked that dentalassociates.com kind of contributed seven tips that we can give to our patients to kind of calm their nervous system prior to even coming to the dentist. So I love what Dr. Estrada said about getting some sleep the night before the dentist, doing whatever they have to do to physically calm themselves. Um, but the first thing was what we just discussed. So preparing to share your fears with your dentist. So um, advises the patient to let the dentist know what they're fearful of and what happens. Um, the second one is plan ahead. So scheduling an appointment on a day where the patient isn't busy, they're less stressed, and they're not in a rush to get somewhere directly after. And this is going to allow their body the opportunity to relax. The thing is, watch your food and water intake. So before an appointment, advise the patient, you know, to avoid foods that are high in sugar or caffeine. And this prevents mood swings and minimizes jitteriness and nerves, right? Um, 
The fourth, the fourth thing is practicing a deep breathing technique. Fifth is visiting your dentist regularly and avoid skipping or prolonging appointments so that they are more in prevention, right? That primary prevention instead of secondary and tertiary prevention, which is generally where people get a little antsy or scared about coming to the dentist. And they're antsy and scared about receiving bad news and, and hearing about all the unknowns that are a lot more likely than when they've been away for a while. Number six is ask the doctor to explain the process with you beforehand, which our docs are great about. And then seven is consider additional medication. So they suggested requesting nitric oxide or uh, sedation, which I thought was great. Yeah, I think, you know, as the as the doctor and it's always good to know your limitations. Sometimes there are patients where really the best thing for them is to actually provide them a sedative or to refer them to somebody who can do sedation dentistry for them. And sometimes you just have patients where that just, that's just the best thing for them. It's not about you winning them over. It's, it's, it sometimes gets to a point where you just have to know that, that this is your limit and you should refer out at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And we're so blessed in our office to have people who do sedation and, mm-hmm. and all the specialists under one roof that makes our life easier and the patient's life a lot easier too. Mm-hmm. Uh, second patient I want to talk about is one that we all know very well. And I think that while we probably love them, they also help us to run behind for the rest of the day if we don't know how to manage them. <laughs> and that's a gregarious and talkative patient. So in the hygiene realm, um, we all know the patient who comes in and forgets that they're at a dental hygiene appointment and they immediately, you know, they see you, they're so excited. They start divulging their life story, starting with the day that they were born and catching us up on everything that's happened since then. Um, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Great that they trust us so much. But it is important for our own mental health and professional health that in this scenario, we're remembering our primary purpose and putting ourselves first, right? Because that that essentially is putting the rest of our patients that day first, right? We're respecting everyone's time, our own and, and our patient's time. So in hygiene, our primary purpose is obviously to be a dental hygienist. So providing screening and assessment for oral diseases and conditions, using all that evidence and information to collaborate with our dentists and formulate treatment plans to make appropriate referrals, and of course, provide all the non-surgical periotherapies and maintenance that patients need. Um, There are other professionals our patients can see to have therapy or to to let all their life's concerns and questions be answered. And there's absolutely no shame in redirecting the conversation or setting boundaries to stay on time and stay in our lane, right? Realize our limitations. Mm -hmm. So when I have a really talkative patient, my kind of strategy around this is I try to catch up on personal things as we're walking down the hall and as soon as we enter the operatory, I, I switch to business or, you know, clinical dental hygiene pretty rapidly. Um, if the patient, you know, when they're seated in the chair is completing a thought or continuing to tell a story, I'll use that time to prepare the operatory while I'm responding to them. So an example would be, you know, I see the patient, I put on the bib, I'm opening all my computer programs, opening sterilization and cassettes, plugging in Cavitron chips and propy angles opening desensitizers, opening XCPs and prepping for x-rays, turning machines on. If the person's long-winded, I will literally stand there (laughs) with an XCP and sensor ready to go in my hand in front of them. And sometimes I'll start even putting back the chairs so that they can see the treatment is beginning if they're not due for x-rays. Okay, conversation (laughs) (laughs) is done. That works pretty effectively. And then- I don't like to cut people <laughs> off in the middle of their sentence, but I do like that's to That's the worst when you have to do that. It makes it's you, worst. it's the worst. It's, or it's the worst when you have an assistant who is really chatty with them 
And then yeah. you have to interrupt both of their conversations. <laughs> yes. But I found, I have found a way to like make this subtle transition and make it less rude. Okay. So as I'm putting the chair back, I start to respond <laughs> to what they're saying. So they're like, oh yeah. And then my car broke down. And then I'm like, oh gosh, the first part of that story was so crazy. I can't believe that. Oh my gosh. You know what? I'm going to really quickly check your gums. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny but but serious and then honestly honestly though multitasking now in my career just because the hygiene is the easy part right everything else is difficult Mm -hmm. management Mm -hmm. the the ledgers the checking out the injury like those are all like the complexities right the patient the clinical hygiene is not the complex part anymore so the good news is I can be actually periodontal charting and, and comparing with last measurements and doing an oral cancer screening and really be present and paying attention to those things while I'm kind of responding to what they were saying, but it does. Especially because you've been doing it for so long. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a little bit easier to do that now, but I think that in general, the, the more comfortable we can become with like the tactical dental or dental hygiene things, the easier that this is. But I think that patients really you know, respect that too, because I'm respecting my own time and kind of creating a boundary and still responding to what they were saying. And they can still tell that I care and I'm still going to carry on the conversation if there is something to contribute while I'm doing my job. So I'm not going to forsake what, what I need to be okay in order to make the patient just feel comfortable, right? Because at the end of the day, they're, they're there for treatment. So I have to make sure that we get the treatment done. Yeah. What I do is I always appreciate it when I get a heads up before I come in the room. So usually from hygiene or from my assistant, I get a heads up. Okay. This patient is really chatty. If they give me a heads up that the patient is chatty, then I know I can really only ask yes or no questions. And even when you only ask yes or no questions, you're still going to get a life story because they'll say yes, but, and then it goes on and on. So sometimes I do my best to avoid the long winded answers with the yes and no questions. Um, But every now and then you do have to interrupt them. And then when you interrupt them, you just have to say, you know, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I have a patient waiting, but I want to hear the rest of your story next time you come in or something like that. But I always try to apologize when I interrupt them because I don't want them to think that I, I don't care about what they have to say. I still want to communicate that I care about what they have to say and I want them Mm -hmm. to feel heard Um, but at the same time, I probably have three other patients waiting for me at that moment. So I I have the easy out because I can say I have somebody waiting for me. At least I can say that. But I think with hygiene, you guys just have one person that you're usually focused on. So that's when you go into, I guess, putting the chair back and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) someone's calling me. Gotta go. I go to a different operatory. I don't know who's there, but I gotta go. No, but I, I really appreciate the way that you put that because you're completely honest in what you're communicating and it's very assertive in saying, so I have to interrupt, but you still interrupt because you have to take care of the schedule and respect everyone's time, including yours, including that patient who's talking to you and including all the other patients that you have to care for. So it's a, it's a healthy, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about because I think that everyone is like, oh God, I'm being rude when I do that, but it's actually you in in the immediate moment, in that moment, I think it's easy to feel like you're being rude or inconsiderate, but you're actually being considerate of your own time and everyone else's time who will be affected if you don't set a boundary in that moment. So I think that that's an important, but I I love that you said, you know, I really want to hear about this next time because you are expressing interest and you do genuinely maybe want to hear what the 
to say and hear the story and what um and maybe you can pick up where you left off next time but at the same time you're making the rest of your day flow smoothly and respecting everyone else's time so i love that okay so this one i actually have some difficulty with and i know that you <laughs> you have found some good ways of dealing with this so the overstepping and inquiring patient. I have a few of these and I'm sure that you do too. So we all have patients who are extra inquisitive about our personal lives, especially when they know us really well. And some that want all the juicy details. Um, it's okay to say things like, I don't want to elaborate. I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about something else. Those are all really direct assertive ways to just be honest. Um, it's also okay to change the subject if you're not comfortable saying any of those things or express that you don't wanna share personal information at work and that's a boundary that you have and that you prefer to focus on their clinical care. So we don't have an obligation to share, obviously. It's, it's okay to say you don't participate in personal relationships with patients. It's okay to say you're not on social media or that your account is private. Um, if a person asks you for a personal phone number, it's okay to say no and it's also ideal to provide another means of communication with the office by providing a business card with our phone number or email instead as an alternative. So it doesn't have to be solid no. And of course, if the patient is trying to communicate you regarding their appointment or regarding their care at the office, you have to provide a resource, right? You can't just, it can't just be a no, but it cannot be your personal number. Um, you let me know about a resource regarding this, There's a way around giving your personal number, but still giving the patient pretty direct contact with you. What was that? Google oh, I use a, uh yeah, I use Google phone or Google talk. I forget what it's called. It's Google phone, I think is what it's called. So um, when patients, so I have two ways. So if I have a patient, a general patient that is, you know, the majority of my patients and they want to have direct contact with me, or if I know they're going to have questions for me, but we're not quite at a phase where um, I think they need direct contact with me, then what I tell them is I give them the the business card and I say to them, this is my email address, my email goes directly to my phone. So if you need to reach me, this is always a great way to reach me. But if I have patients where I know that I'm doing, you know, extensive treatment on them and I want them to have direct contact with me, or if I know that they're going to have a lot of questions and it's a complicated treatment plan, then what I do is I give them uh, my Google phone number. And the Google phone is a is a number that I have memorized. Um, and, you know, once you use it frequently enough, you you get to memorize it. But I've memorized it and I give it on the post-op directions or on the pre-op directions for patients when I know that they're gonna come in for complicated treatment plans. And this way, if anything happens or if they have questions or if they get very nervous the night before or if I need to reach them directly, then I call them from my Google phone app. And even like um, on emergencies on the weekends and things like that, I call from my Google phone app. And that way I have control over whether or not I wanna answer the phone. So Google phone, when people call you on there, when it rings and you answer the phone, what you hear is, um, you know, it, when the person calls you, they say their name, it asks their name, and then it calls me and then it'll say, Brittany is calling me. And I can choose to press one to answer or I press, I think, two to send it to voicemail. And this way I have, you know, more control over whether or not I want to answer the phone call. I always answer the phone call. It's very, very rare that I don't answer the phone call. I almost always answer the phone call, especially if they have that number, it's because I'm going to answer the phone call, but mm -hmm. it's a, just one extra filter. And I think honestly, being a female too, you need to have some sort of wall there too. I think that's also important. 
Yeah, this is a tool that I actually need to use because I'm usually very, you like you know me, and I think that we're very similar in some ways, like especially with direct communication and just kind of like being assertive, hopefully with kindness and not like just, you know, not coming across as harsh or rude. Um, but I think we're both pretty direct, but there have been times that I have to admit a patient has caught me off guard and requested my personal phone number when I was emotionally frazzled and just at my wits end. And I just gave it to them, like basically to get them to go like, and that is the worst decision <laughs> ever. Because whether it's, so then whether when you have the Google phone, you could just, you have exactly. that number ready to go. Exactly. <laughs> and so with our office, here's the thing, here's how I set myself up mentally for this, unfortunately. So at our office, <laughs> Early in um, when I first started, well, we always we we always make phone calls to check on patients who have had local anesthetic, right? And um, I would sometimes do that for my personal phone on the way home, so that I didn't have to be in the office when I was doing that. And so, kind of like that was a very common thing when I first started working at Spodak. And then I realized, like, man, some people love communicating with their patients from their personal phone number. And I was like, I really don't feel I don't feel good about doing that. Yeah. Want to do that after hours. I got to set a boundary here, but because it's like kind of acceptable in our practice, I haven't put like this rigid boundary there. I haven't like really put intention and effort behind protecting my sacred phone number. <laughs> no, and like uh, my personal and my personal time. So I think that I'm going to. This boundary it. was set up for me when I was in dental school. This is That's something that they recommended for us when we were in dental school because right, this is how we would get in touch with our patients. But, and I've kept it, I've kept it all the way through. I mean, I have a different one with a, a better area code, you know, more local area code for my patients at Spodak. But this for me has been a game changer because it, it's just protection. It really is just protection because it only takes one bad, one bad scenario for you to regret that. And, yeah. and, and the thing is, unfortunately, you know, I've with it, there's, there's so much trust involved with dentists, but then there's also so much distrust. And what they do is they, sometimes you have patients who contact you um, over and over and over again with small questions and you kind of have to set the boundary. And that's how I'm able to do that is with the Google phone. Cause the Google phone doesn't, I can set up whether or not I want to take the phone call and I can set up whether or not I want to see those text messages. Um, but and then I know that some practices have programs that do the same thing. Like I know that there's Medento out there that does that, which I think we might be in the process of trying out Medento in our office. Um, but most offices have some kind of program or something that will do it, that you can use the phone number through there. But I do highly recommend that. That's super important to set up that boundary. That is like, that for me, that's a very strong boundary. There's just... Yeah. And I think, I think that's really important because the thing is, is when you start to give out your personal number, what happens when you're like, you know, at ballet class with your daughter or when you're, you know, you're just not in a, in a space where you can take the phone call. You can't, you can't set up a boundary with if you give them your personal number. Right. And then it's kind of like not fair for anyone because you gave this person your personal number. You're not available to give them that care at that time. And you're also not available completely for whoever you're with or spending time with. Like you're not completely present because there's this like gray area that you've created. So I think that's a great, a great thing to know about. I'm gonna the other thing I was going to say, you were saying quite something about like when patients ask you questions and, um, and you don't know how to answer them. I always take the question 
and I, I turn it into, I like turn it to the extreme. Like if somebody says to me something like, um, you know, how long have you been doing this? Have you done this before? Then I'll say something like, yeah, I mean, I just looked it up on YouTube, like just now. And the thing is, is that the joke from that, it's like such an extreme answer that they understand that I'm joking. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes when patients ask me questions like that, I answer the question, but I take it to an extreme so that they know that I'm, I'm being funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And anything like that, I just, I go, I just, that's what I do. I turn it around into a joke for them. That like, if it's a question, you just don't want to answer or don't feel comfortable telling what the answer is. Yeah. Or it's just a ridiculous question. Like, how could you, like, really, how could you, how could you ask me for, uh, like, for, I feel like for you as your, like, really, how can your patients ask you for your personal number? Like, how could they ask you for that? You know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've had, I've had some men and women ask me for my personal number and, and 99.9% of the time, the answer is no, but a couple of times I said, yes. And they've taken advantage of that. You need to get yourself a Google phone. <laughs> I am. I am. I'll make the switch. Don't worry. I'll make the switch. I'll make it very clear. Very clear. All right. So the next type of patient that we want to talk about is the, oh, the pain best. Wait, yeah, you know what I, I found? You know what I thought was interesting about this is that you put avoiding payment and chronic failing in the same category. Yeah, I did. Because Why did you do that? Because I don't think they're the same. same. It's the same amount. No into the practice it's the same amount of disrespect like blatant disrespect for our time and expertise in my opinion so it belongs in the same category I know that they're separate issues so we can <laughs> but I, I feel so personally offended by both of them <laughs> yeah, yeah obviously you're very angry <laughs> yeah, no it's just it's just that you know I've come I think that a mistake that a lot of newer providers make is that we don't value our time and we don't value services that we're given as much and we tend to away for free. We tend to come in early, stay late. And and some of that is a part of just, you know, being new and being excited and um, building hungry to when people are new. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, Like I watched Dr. Mike go through this. I've watched a lot of like new, newer doctors kind of like go above and beyond. And that's great for building your clientele and building rapport with people. But at some point it's like, you've got a way, like, where's the boundary here too? Like, where do I want my personal life to begin and my work life to maybe stop or be abbreviated until tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so the avoiding payment patient, um, let's actually talk about the chronic fail first. I like the chronic fail okay. straightforward. The avoiding payment patient can be straightforward too, but it can also be complex on the back end if we're like sending bills and that sort of thing. Um, the chronic fail. So at Spodak, if you have two or more failed appointments or cancellations within a 24 hour period, um, we have a rule that for this patient to reschedule, they've got to pay for the appointment in full. So mm-hmm. if you have an unconfirmed patient who has failed twice before, and I see them on my schedule, I asked James, who's my administrative partner, to um, reach out to the patient. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, so we can we can do a couple of things. The first thing and most ideal thing is that <laughs> before the day that it happens, right? So the most ideal because I look at this three days in advance and have someone call this person to say, hey, you know, thank you so much for scheduling with us. Um, in order to keep this appointment, we're going to require prepayment in full. That should happen ahead of the day of the appointment, right? Or even ideally when it's being scheduled, but things like when this, it's being scheduled. right? And in, in reality, like things like this are, are missed because of all the 
the nuances of what's going on in the call center and whoever's looking at schedules. Um, but they should ideally prepay in full ahead of the appointment or in order to schedule another appointment. So if they're an insurance patient, you can pre-collect the estimated um, co-payment. You know, if it's a service patient, obviously it's very straightforward. And just let the patient know that if they, they don't come or if they 24 hour period that they're going to forfeit that payment. It's, it's not going to go to a future appointment. So that's one way to do it. Another way to kind of conserve chair time is if I have a patient who has failed multiple times and has not confirmed an appointment. So this can be done the day before or the day of, if it's early enough. Um, we usually send a call, a text and an email that says, Hey, Mrs. Jones, thank you so much for scheduling with Brittany. We have you down for tomorrow at 1 PM for hygiene. We see that you're unconfirmed. Um, if we don't hear back from you by noon of today, we're going to go ahead and remove that appointment from the schedule in order to reserve time for another patient who's on our waiting list or something of that nature. And that's like protecting my time while giving the person an appropriate like amount of time and heads up and, and a window of time that they can call and say, oh, no, I'm confirming that appointment. I can definitely be there. I'm committed to making it if they have a history of fails or cancellations. Mm -hmm. You know, collecting. Go ahead. So I have a funny story about the uh, chronic failing patient. So when I was in high school or maybe in college in the transition, probably um, I used to get my eyebrows waxed at European wax center. Do you know that place? Yeah. So, uh, and so European wax center, I would go there and get my eyebrows waxed. And I was an irresponsible high schooler who did, wasn't taking the time seriously. And so um I remember one day I called to make an appointment and they were like, I'm sorry, you can't make an appointment. Like, why? And they're like, they said, because um, you've failed multiple appointments. So from now on, you can only make an appointment the day of. So I'd have to call the morning that I want to have my eyebrows waxed to see if anybody canceled and then get on the schedule that way. Obviously that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I'm much more responsible. I'm an adult and all of that. But um I, I always remember that when we talk about chronic failing patients. So like you said, in our office, the policy is, I think what James does is I think James tells them the policy or, you know, the call center tells them the policy every time they make the appointment. Mm -hmm. So every time a patient makes an appointment, they're reminded of our policy, which is, I forget what it is. I think it's 24, 48 hour notification before canceling an appointment. And if not, there's a fee that they will incur. And then when they fail the first appointment, we remind them of the fee, but we, we courtesy them and we let them have one without charging. And then the second one, we charge them. But then when they do it on the third time, then I say to James, okay, well then they need to, or to my treatment coordinator, they need to prepay for the appointment time. And they need to understand that a certain portion of that is a deposit that is not refundable. Right. And then if a patient still doesn't show up, then I tell them they can only schedule same day. So, you know, my schedule and, you know, your schedule and sometimes maybe in the morning, if we have somebody who cancels in the morning, then they might be able to get it. But it's really difficult to get in on the same day. So at that point, it just becomes almost like a, 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 a soft exit for them from the practice because they, they can't commit to the time. I've heard of people using verbiage like, you know, well, can you give us a time that you can commit to and using that verbiage that you can commit to. But in our practice, it's. And in a lot of practices, the time is too valuable. There's not, there, there's really, we have a waiting list and it, it's, it is, it's disrespectful to the time. And they just don't understand that it's disrespectful to the time. They just don't realize the value of our time and they take it for granted. 
Right. Yeah. And I don't think that there's anything wrong again with like letting someone experience the natural consequence of not respecting someone else's time. Like, I think that's a healthy life lesson, like your European wax center learning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the avoiding payment patient. So for me, this is usually an insurance patient who pays a copay and then doesn't respond to bills that are sent to them if there was a discrepancy in what we estimated they would owe and in, in what insurance actually ended up covering, even like $50 or $100 or something, right? So if they don't you know, respond to the bill or pay prior to their next appointment, that stinks, but it's usually okay, right? They just come to their next appointment and usually it's taken care of. But if I have a person who chronically um, argues or disputes balances, and of course we, we make every effort to collect the appropriate amount, but we also let our patients know um, when we're presenting for treatment that it's an estimate of what their insurance may cover, is likely to cover because we know that insurance is its own entity, right? They, they make decisions differently than how we do. It's not based on what we're saying clinically, it's based on their own parameters. So, um, you know, if it's, if it's chronically an issue to collect from a patient, one, I like to let them know what the next visit is likely to be, but two, if I know that they have an outstanding balance or they're likely to have difficulty paying for it before I even take them back to the clinical area, if they're here for a hygiene visit and I know that they have an outstanding value that they've disputed or, or something, or they're, they're going to have an issue with this, I'm not going to complete more clinical care, right? Because then they're incurring more that they owe us, right? A bigger bill. So continue to do that. So if it's not something that was caught ahead of time and they didn't pay over the phone and now they're in the office, usually I'll have an administrative team member take them back, take care of the bill and estimated co-payment before I even see them clinically. That way it's not an issue on the back end. And they have a, they at least have a choice in the matter as to whether or not they want to stay or go for a hygiene procedure. I think that this would be a much bigger deal on the restorative end, if there's a huge restorative balance, like in their restorative work, obviously this is handled a little bit differently. So what would that look like in your world? So if a patient has a balance that they owe and it's not a balance that has, you know, some kind of payment plan to it or something like that, then they need to pay the balance before they go back into the operatory. That has to be done. Um, and a lot of times what will happen is before we even get a chance to start the day, the treatment coordinators are reviewing the schedule and they're looking to see if there's any balances that are due on the patients. If there's a balance due on the patient in Dentrix, the patient is marked with a dollar sign in front of their name. So this way, when the assistant or when James or whoever, you know, makes the first impression with the patient and brings them back, then that person knows that they need to see a treatment coordinator first and they cannot be seated in the operatory. So that's one thing. We use that dollar sign signal. Um, And then the other thing is sometimes when they're in the room um, before we start treatment, ideally we like to collect before treatment starts. Um, That would be an ideal situation. Uh, Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the patient has led back before. If it's a patient with a large case, like if it's a patient where I'm doing a reconstruction or I'm doing something, you know, that is a little bit more, um, that it's just more treatment then that person has to have paid before I start the treatment. So with bigger cases, the policy is that we must have collected in full at least one week prior to the day that we start their case. So, um, and if, and the reason why we do it one week is because if they pay us with a check 
or something like that, something that just bounces or doesn't go through, then we have one week before the day we start. So this way we can say to them, okay, this payment didn't work. Do you have another method or another form of payment that we can run? And all of that has to be taken care of before I even start. And if it's not fully paid, then we cannot start. Um, sometimes what will happen is if with larger cases like that, if a patient comes and they schedule and then they um, decide that they want to cancel, um, then there's a portion or there's a minimum fee for, because sometimes I have to take a whole day or a half a day for these cases. And when I do that, then they understand that there's a minimum of $1,500 non-refundable if they decide not to show up and they give us less than 24 hours notice for that at that point, because it is such a large portion of the day. Before mm -hmm. they can even schedule, they have to put down a deposit. And the deposit is just saying, here's my word. And then this is, this is just to hold the appointments. And before that block of time is taken, then we collect a deposit. Um, but it gets a little bit more tricky and it's much more complicated when we're doing larger cases like that. Ideally, everything should be collected before they come back into the operatory. And if for some reason it's not collected, then if we're like in, in a bind or, or the time is short and we can't take them back to the treatment coordinator first, I review with them verbally what's expected before I even start. So there's no surprises because a lot of times what happens is there's a surprise. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe no one said something to them. Maybe they forgot what the treatment plan they signed said on it. Um, so we just remind them, um, but ideally they should pay before they come back. Right. Yeah. I think that saves a lot of like sticker shock at the end and you never want someone to feel like that. Like, oh, I wasn't informed. I didn't know, like always in the front end, obviously, whenever it comes to payment. Mm -hmm. The next patient I want to talk about is everyone's favorite patient. Um, the insurance driven patient. Uh, I know it's the bane of, it, it was the bane of my existence actually at, at the beginning of my practice when I was a younger hygienist. And honestly, now it's almost a non-issue, but it's a non-issue because of some of the things that we're about to talk about and some of the solutions that we've kind of discovered in trial and error and talking amongst ourselves and figuring out what works to communicate with an insurance-driven patient, right? So it's really, really important that if a person comes into our office expressing an interest or need to use their insurance benefits and they express concern about paying anything out of pocket, that we make sure to communicate our office philosophy up front. So instead of addressing, you know, just whether or not they will be responsible for something out of pocket, I, I kind of leave that on a shelf and I address something else instead. Um, I let them know that we provide high level assessment and care to address their oral health issues and concerns, regardless of what their insurance will cover. So I let them know that I have an ethical obligation to let them know what I see and offer them solutions, starting with the best and even giving them alternatives to the best, right? Um, you can choose, I, I let them know they can choose a solution that best fits their budget or financial interests and that we will always give them an estimate of what a service will cost out of pocket prior to completing their care so that they're always to know what they're responsible for, at least what we estimate they'll be responsible for. And I make sure to use that word estimate. Um, the most, you know, for an insurance driven patient, it's important that we don't take on that insurance mindset and, and letting our degree like go into the trunk as Teresa would say that, that we keep our degree and our education, like in the forefront. And remember that that's our purpose. That's why we're here. And that's why they're here. They may not understand the value of what we can give them or offer them or the problems that we can solve for them because they're 
in their brain, they're so focused on what insurance is going to cover and what the cost is. But usually that's the case because they don't yet understand the value, right? So the most effective way to relay the value of what we do for patients and a way to enroll a patient, regardless of whether or not they are insurance motivated, is the following. And I have to thank Dr. Estrada for helping me with this. <laughs> I S- saw it on your notes too. And I was like, oh, I think that looks familiar. <laughs> I always forget the acronym, but I really like this because it simplified everything. And that's in this order. So discussing the problem, the consequence, the solution, and the benefit, mm-hmm. right? So the first thing is discuss with the patient what their problem is, how and why it developed, why it's there, what influences it if the patient has a desire to know. Some people don't need that level of detail, right? So it depends on the particular patient. But of course, that would be the, the stage when we're reviewing the x-rays, the photos, the perio chart, and kind of explaining the problem or the disease state or the current health status, right? And the next thing we would review is the consequence. So what's the outcome going to be for them if most likely if we choose to do nothing about this problem? The solution what I'm recommending for them and why I'm recommending it. And then the benefit or what they will experience if they accept treatment. So I I make sure to, to explain the value in each of these procedures. So everything that I'm offering them solution wise, um, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm explaining it in a way that applies to that particular patient. So I'm always tying it back to their chief complaint, right? So notice, and then one of the last things that I'm going to talk about is cost. And there's, there's a purpose for that because I want to make sure that they understand all of these things before we talk about cost. So that cost isn't, isn't still a barrier for them, right? Because they came in with cost being a barrier on the front end. I don't want to like double that barrier by bringing it up first. And I want them to understand the value before they decide what they're willing to pay for it, right? I want to know all of these things before they decide if it's for them or not. Um, And what I will say is that People who understand the value of what we're giving them will prioritize things. So even insurance journals will reorganize their priorities when when information is presented in this order oftentimes because they've never, when they've gone to other practices, what's likely happened or what I think has happened is they've gone with a chief complaint of needing to use their insurance benefits. And so dentists and hygienists sometimes take off their clinical expertise hat and start looking at this patient's health from the view of what will their insurance cover, right? It's not our function. It's not meant to be our function as healthcare providers, but we start to go into that. So we've kind of diffused that here and hopefully at least open the person's mind to, you know, there's more to clinical healthcare and dentistry than just what their insurance says is important because that's usually not the priority as we know. Notice the cost is always the last thing that I'm mentioning, because if they hear the cost first, some patients will make a decision solely based on that before they know how beneficial the services are. And the last thing that I like to do is to normalize these procedures by sharing that it's helped so many other patients and that other patients have said yes to the same solution. So I normalize it and let them know this is a this is a good decision. Like this is a good solution that many other sane adults have made benefited them too, because some people need to know that like the tribe is on their side. They need that validation, you know? So I'm letting them know that it's a normal thing to do this. And something important before they reach the, the treatment plan coordinator and they start deciding on payment plans and how to break up their payments or make it feasible for them before they leave the clinical area, they need to have all these questions answered, all their clinical questions answered. And the only questions they should have left when they leave us should be regarding financing. It's funny when you say that because you say um, 
you, you, you tell the patient that you have other patients that have gone through this treatment and, and you make them realize that they are just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say that, it reminds me of, um, do you remember, I don't know if you know the, um, this book influence by Robert Cialdini. Do you know this book? Well, Robert Cialdini, what he talks about is there are different factors that go into how to influence people. And one of them is it's called, I think it's called likeness and likeness means that when a, when a person realizes that there are other people like them or other people who have made the same exact decision that they're about to make, then they're more likely to go in that direction. So likeness is one of those things. Another, there's a few other things on there. And and this is something that I, I've learned actually just from practicing for so long. I think it's, it's a book that has been recommended several times, but uh, likeness is one of them. And I think what another, there's a few of them, actually, that's a whole, that's a, probably like a whole nother podcast, uh, which is a really good topic. Actually, you should read that book. Uh, All right, you really should. That's a really good one. Yeah, you really should. Um, but um, what I was going to say, just basically my piece on this is that when patients come in and they have a problem, and even in the hygiene room, when I am brought in and I'm, I'm brought in, actually, one of the things, sometimes the girls, you guys will bring me in to kind of back you up on a treatment plan. And I have to almost like be that extra doctor, that other third person to come in and say, you have this problem and I agree. And this is what the consequences are. And this, and I have to be just the same, say the same thing in a different way to the patient to back you guys up. So that the patient understands that this is a serious problem that they really actually have to do something about. Um, But if we are going through the PCSB properly and the patient is understanding everything, then the only question that they should have left at the end of that is how much, you know, how much will it cost me to get this done? Um, but it's not, it shouldn't be if, if they're still trying to cut corners and that means that they still haven't understood because once they understand, then we have gotten the value of what they need across. Sometimes mm-hmm. patients don't understand that, you know, the, the link between the systemic and what's going on with with their mouths. And sometimes patients don't understand the severity of periodontal disease. A lot of times I notice that patients think that periodontal disease is just like another cleaning. It's a deep cleaning, right? So it's just another type of cleaning and they're just trying to get more money out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and they, they kind of kick the can and they say, no, I want a regular cleaning or, or they try to avoid it. They try to do, instead of going to see the periodontist, they want to do a rest in or something like that. And so, I think that when one of the things that I say to them is, um, you know, once you guys have gone through the x-rays and you show them, you know, sometimes you can see the calculus on the x-rays or sometimes you can't. And I'll say to the patient, you know, I explained to them the disease process, how it got to be this way. The fact that they're losing bone, the fact that the losing their bone is something that's irreplaceable. It's not something irreversible. And I say to them, you can continue to kind of push this off and kind of kick the can on the treatment but you're at a phase in the disease process where you can either be aggressive about solving it, or you can continue to move in this direction. But there are patients that I have seen that have been fighting, have been trying to rid themselves of periodontal disease for decades, and they have been going on and on and on for many years. But if you can be aggressive in treating the disease now, then you can solve the disease now. But if you continue in this process or the way that you've been doing for a while, then you're just going to be prolonging it. And it can be decades and it can be a very, very long time. It's better to be aggressive right up front when it's more manageable. 
I always say that to patients because if they can understand, sometimes they really are at a precipice where they can choose to be aggressive with the disease and they can choose to be very diligent at home. And if they can just do that, then they can just get back on the right side of the fence. Mm -hmm. But if they are kind of lagging and they still want to continue in this pattern that they've been on this whole time, this is going to turn into something that they're going to be fighting for years and years to come. Mm-hmm. I always try to get that across to them because if they can just understand that they just really got to be good right now and really forever, but if they could just get on track right now, it can be a life changer for them. Right. They can say same. Right. Same thing. Like with insurance is like, if a patient starts to talk to me about insurances, doctors were always trained to not talk about finances. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the worst things that doctors can do is start to get into the nitty gritty of financial stuff, especially when insurance is involved, because insurance is such a complicated thing. You really have to have somebody that knows the details of their insurance policy before you can start talking numbers with the patient. Mm-hmm. And it's just not in good form as a doctor to go into that. But um, one of the main things that I say to patients in order to kind of avoid getting into the, the details of their insurance policies, I'll say to them, you know, we will be happy to do a, a a benefits check for you. We'll be happy to do a benefits check for you and we'll make sure that we maximize your benefits. And then if they start to say, you know, is there a payment plan or how am I going to be able to afford this? Then my response is always, we have different things that we can do in the, in the office to help make it affordable for you. Those are those two things I always say, we are happy to do a benefits check and we have different things we can do in the office to help make this affordable for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're kind of outsourcing to the specialists who are treatment plan coordinators and people who deal with insurance all day who can give them the most realistic estimate of what their insurance is likely to to cover. Mm-hmm. And that provides or that just prevents a lot of upsets on the back end. I love that. Um, okay, the two last patients, they're very similar, right? The next is the friendly patient. This one is, is funny to me and I haven't quite figured out how to navigate this. So this can be a person who you were friends with and then they became your patient or a person who became your patient and then you became friends with. And I have difficulty with this in both directions, but most of the time I don't make friends with my patients in order to keep like a degree of separation and keep, you know, a degree of professionalism. Like if, if I met them at the office, but if I have a friend who needs great dental care, of course, I'm going to refer them to Spodak and then I'm going to be their hygienist. And then <laughs> this awkward scenario where they're asking questions about their oral health at the pool party or at the barbecue and like, trying to like not do this thing and trying to just oh be their friend goodness. outside of work and trying to be their professional dental health hygienist inside of work. So um, next thing you know, you've got someone pulling their denture out at Thanksgiving yeah, dinner for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, can you tell me, does this look cracked to you? What do you think? Is this a fungus? <laughs> Put it back in your mouth, please, Aunt Jerry. Come on, let's not do this. Um, so I, the only way that I've learned to handle this, and I really need your insight on this, Dr. Estrada, because we <laughs> really still don't know the answer. So <laughs> make sure that payment is handled with someone other than me because Oh, absolutely. 0% to be involved in my friend's financial situation, like at all. Don't want to be. I don't take payment even from my regular patients. I'm definitely not going to take payment from my patient, from my friends. Right. So for me, it's an obligation though to do simple checkout, right? So that's not one of your obligations, but for me, it is. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to get involved at all. So usually I'll just take them to a treatment plan coordinator. Um, And then I try to set some boundaries around, you know, discussing their care outside of work or I, redirect the conversation and say, Hey, let's schedule a phone call to talk about 
like your hygiene or your dental care or, or, Hey, can I schedule an appointment or a consult with your doctor? Because they'll be asking me about their dental treatment plan, like at the barbecue or pool party, you know, like we just mentioned, um, and <laughs> the answer is because I don't have their treatment plan right in front of me. So I just kind of say like, Hey, let's call the office or I can put you in, you know, next week I'll text you regarding this, or I'll have someone reach out to you. No, them never put them in. I never put my friends on my schedule. I always tell them to call the office or I have my treatment coordinator or somebody who's on the phones call them directly, mm-hmm. but I never schedule them. And if they want to get in for something really quick, I tell them, or I have somebody call them, but I never schedule them because when you start to put them on your schedule, then they get into this pattern of texting you to get mm-hmm. things done for themselves. And mm-hmm. I don't do that. And the other thing is, is like, uh, um, if they ask me questions um, about their treatment, I'll say, yeah, we have to get you in for an appointment because it turns into a long conversation about their treatment or they start texting you all the time because their night guard feels tight or just like random things, or they were uh, just random things. And the best thing to do is to always, it's almost like you're compartmentalizing and it's a different person. So there's Myra and then there's Dr. Estrada. And yeah. these are two different people. <laughs> and they're two di- I think I even made two different Instagrams now, which I just did last week because they're two completely different people. It's a totally yeah. different mode. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to separate your social media. That's one way to, because then if your patients want to follow you, they can follow your professional account and that's right. And plus they don't want to see like my kid. They don't want to see my kid on a swing every Saturday. I mean, I mean, some of them do. That's the I know that's true. Patient. That's one that we already talked about. Don't give them your Instagram. Just don't do it. Okay. So I like that. Um, the, and last but not least is literally our favorite patients, our favorite patients. So um, I think it's really important that when we establish and You know, for me, what I want to acknowledge is a lot of the patients that we just mentioned, I think a lot of patients who come in with dental anxiety or financial concerns or who are talkative or inquisitive, they kind of like have been given the sense in their life experience that they're quote unquote, a bad patient or a difficult patient or an undesirable patient, maybe because of all those things and difficulty managing them as a patient. But I don't think that any of those things in and of themselves make someone a bad patient, right? Like I never want to shame anyone or make anyone feel bad for being a patient who requires some management. To me, the only bad patients are the rude, disrespectful kind Mm -hmm. of patients, the patients who, you know, like we talked about, don't respect our time, show up 30 minutes late, are demanding, entitled, that sort of thing. Those to me are bad patients, anxious patients, people who have anxiety, right? Even people who... um, Maybe, you know, they're talkative, inquisitive, whatever. It might just be their way of expressing that they care and maybe they need to become more self-aware, work on their boundaries, but doesn't mean they're like a bad patient, right? So sometimes our favorite patients can be patients that fall in any one of those categories that we just mentioned, and sometimes they don't. But either way, when we know who our favorite patients are, it's important that we realize that we really need to prioritize them and make sure that we're rolling out the red carpet every time that we're interacting with them. So, you know, the ones who say yes to everything. They get our philosophy. They're kind, considerate of our time. They maintain appropriate boundaries without much coaching and they pay for their services on time generally, right? So they confirm and show up for their appointments and refer us their amazing friends because people refer people who are like them generally, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a patient, you don't want their friends. And if you have a great patient, you want all their friends and their family and their mother-in-law. 
So what I do for my favorite patients is one, I always make sure to pre-appoint them, right? I never, ever, ever. And that's a goal for each patient in my operatory because hygiene and all that stuff, but especially for the patients that I have a longstanding relationship with and, you know, fit all, they check all the boxes, right? Always want to make sure to pre-appoint them and make sure that they get a time that they want. I'll even pre-appoint some of these patients for the entire year. Um, because it alleviates a little bit of the stress. Like if they fall off for some reason and have difficulty rescheduling, at least they have a backup appointment scheduled. And also um, generally I'll give them my email or something to communicate with me directly about an appointment if they need to get in sooner, because usually it's due to an extenuating circumstance for this person, right? Mm -hmm. um, I like to um, acknowledge and thank them for their referrals in person. So if I know they sent a family member or a friend in, I like to name that friend or family member and then say, thank you so much. I always appreciate your referrals. This person was so kind. And of course I can't give explicit information about that person's oral health, but I can say, thank you so much. We had a great time. Really appreciate that referral. Um, I know that another way that our office connects with these patients is we send them birthday cards or sympathy cards and let them know that we appreciate their trust in us and longstanding relationship with the practice. I also think it's important not to get too like comfortable and familiar with these patients. I think that when someone's really agreeable um, and really easy to be around, sometimes we can take that for granted, right? And we don't roll out the red carpet for them anymore because we're like, oh, it's Mrs. Jones. She's so easy. I've seen her a hundred times. She always just pays her bills and just shows up. Yeah, I want her to doing that. And I want her to feel good about being here. And I want to give her the very best care, you know, because she is that amazing patient. So it's important. I think that we remember that these patients deserve our best, even on their hundredth visit. Right. Um, so if it's a person who normally has nitrous, I make sure to have their nitrous mask ready to go. I make sure to have their desensitizers, their blanket. I have their, um, I'm on time for them. I have their med history open and ready to go. You know, I'm ready to respect their time because they've always respected my time and, and our practice and they really get it, right? So I'm gonna keep them around. What else do you have? What do you have on our favorite patients? So we have, um, well, if you know that they need headphones, you have the headphones ready for them. If you know they need a blanket, you get the blanket for them. So we always have that in the notes, which we know that already about our practice that we keep that in the notes for our patients so that they know that they can, count on the blanket to be there or the headphones or the nitrous or whatever it is that they're expecting. Um, but just to add on, making sure that they have an appointment booked for their next, uh, their next recall, but also making sure that they have both appointments to make sure they have, they have the hygiene appointment and that they have their next dental visit appointment with the dentist as well. If they mm -hmm. have, you know, pending treatment, sometimes they don't have pending treatment, but usually if they're in my chair, they have something else. There's usually some sort of plan for them that we're kind of working our way through. Um, but yeah, and a lot of times with these patients, like if they, sometimes like if a patient, when you said this referral thing, it reminded me to bring this up. If a patient is saying, you know, oh, I love that you guys always have this blanket and you guys are really paying attention or anything like that. And they compliment the practice then the, the automatic response that I have in my head is, thank you for noticing. We work really hard on, on doing that. Um, and then after I say, thank you for noticing, we work really hard, I'll say, if you um, make sure you tell your friends. So it'll mm -hmm. be, you know, thank you for noticing. We work really hard on it. Make sure, please tell your friends. And if they're like you, please tell them to come or something mm -hmm. like that, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's automatic. If someone is giving a compliment, I'll say, thank you for noticing. Please tell your friends. I love it. I love it. Well, mm -hmm. For all of your wisdom and insight and your years and years of 
years and years. Patient management. But in all seriousness, um, I, I really do have to thank you because working with you is like so easy because of your ability to help manage challenging patients in all of these different ways. And I think yeah. that, you know, because you're assertive and you're caring and kind and considerate, like pe- people can sense that you care and also that you're giving them the truth. And I think that's a really valuable communication, like method that not a lot of people are capable of doing very, very well and very, very naturally. So it's really Mm -hmm. a blessing to have you in our practice. So I want to say thanks for that. Thanks for making my life easy. And thank you so much too, for being here and for sharing your experience on how to manage all these patients better. Cause I know it was really helpful for me. So I would imagine it's going to be helpful for our listeners too. So thanks. Oh yeah. I'm trying to think about things because, you know, I know that, um, it's so different because I'm on a podcast and usually when I'm, when I'm talking to people, it's so natural for me to kind of get into the things that I want to talk about with them. And I find that, um, I call it the hidden treasure. I find that, um, my goal with every appointment with every patient is to get to the hidden treasure and the hidden treasure is what is my way of connecting with the patient. And if I can connect with the patient, once I can connect with them, then I can disarm. And it's really just about finding a way to disarm every patient and every, every personality, whether it's, you know, a 16 year old kid or, you know, an 85 year old woman. Some, I always try to find the, the hidden treasure. And sometimes though, and this is something I think is worth mentioning in this topic is that every now and then you really do find somebody that you can't create a connection. And it's because maybe they are a toxic type of personality. And when you have those patients who are a toxic type of personality, the best thing that you can do for yourself and for your practice is to recognize it up front. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, you know, when you meet these people and when you recognize it up front and you set your boundaries and you say, when you say to them, you know, I really don't think the connection is there, you know, and you, you basically avoid creating a relationship with them and you encourage them to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that's important to do because as you learn more and more about people and human beings and what your limitations are and what you're comfortable with as a provider, then you'll come to know the signs, the red flags of when to take a patient on in your practice. And those patients, you know, they have to understand it's also a privilege to be a part of the practice. It's also a privilege to be taken care of this way. And you have a right to, to say, you know, this is not something I'm willing to tolerate. Um, but I think that's also something worth mentioning is that sometimes that does happen. And sometimes you have patients who come in and they're right off the bat, you know, especially with the patients who are high anxiety and they'll say something, they just are mean, or they just are very unpleasant right off the bat because they're scared. Mm-hmm. And you have to, or, or I try to say something to them. That's why I do the you know, I commend you for coming in today. I try to give them something positive right off the bat, but I have had scenarios in the past where a patient, multiple patients I've had where they just are um, almost upset with me because I'm giving them news about what, what's going on with them about their periodontal disease usually. And, and they get upset with me and I have to remind them that I'm here to help them. You know, I'm here to help you. And everything that I'm doing and everything I'm saying to you right now, I'm doing and I'm saying because I want to help you and I care about you as a human being. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that also helps to disarm them because I think in their minds, they've come up with this idea that we are um, 
that we're going to give them bad news or that we're judging them or they feel ashamed or maybe they've had a bad experience and they think that they're going to have another bad experience. So I try to remind them that I care about them. And I think once they remember that, because they forget that, and once they remember that, then I think it helps to disarm them. Yeah. I think that's great. I love the hidden treasure. And I I also love the distinction that, you know, we're not for everyone and everyone's not for us and that's okay. And it's acceptable. You know, Mm -hmm. there is someone who is for them. It's just not you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's an okay thing to say for sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you for making that distinction and for bringing that up. All right. Thank you for having me, Britt. Of course. (laughs) It's been my pleasure. And thanks everyone for um, listening and for being here with us as well. If you want to continue connecting with us, you can download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene. Sharice and I are there all the time checking in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast or suggestions for future podcasts, and we'd love to uh, connect with you further. Hope you have a great week. See you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.